Hello, and welcome to another rousing edition of Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, climbing into a spider tank. I, I actually thought you'd have a different intro line, so I actually now have my outro line saved. This is a, this is, this is a first. Thank Perfect. the heavens. But um, I, I do believe we have a special guest joining us. That's right. Refusing to send a rabbit to kill a fox, we are joined by Jara Hodge, the co-host of the Women at Warp podcast. Jara, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Now, Jara, back in the day, you were on the Subspace Transmissions podcast with us, and you've gone on to do Women at Warp, which is a very popular Star Trek podcast I recommend to everyone. But maybe you could talk a little bit about how Women at Warp got started and what the show kind of is. Yeah, so uh, Women at Warp is a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about what we call intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. So basically gender, race, uh, all sorts of great queer stuff, and uh, social justice commentary related to Star Trek. And we have a rotating crew of seven women hosts and try to have on a lot of guests from different backgrounds that maybe aren't normally on all of the uh, you know convention stages and things around Star Trek fandom. And how many years has the podcast been going now? Uh, seven years, actually. Uh, we are... Uh, I. I think we have passed our seven year anniversary. So now we are, you know, longer than the longest Star Trek se- series. <laughs> it's true. Are you, are you running out of ideas like season sevens tend to, or is, nope. it, is it still firing all cylinders? This is like the true season eight of TNG we should have had. Yes, I I fully believe so. Yes, uh, there's, uh, I mean, partly Star Trek keeps releasing new things now Mm. so that's uh keeping us all busy um and then there's just a lot of of you know you can mine different like deep dives on characters and episodes as well as broader themes across more than 50 years of stuff i think you know we started doing a series on women villains and that alone we we thought was going to be an episode and now it's like four episodes and we probably will have to do future ones have you done one on the villainous side of janeway and the fact that she killed two vicks um you know we did a janeway episode and we also did a hot takes episode where we talked about two vicks a bit um and i think someone suggested i think they've done at conventions like a mock trial um so i don't know maybe (laughs) that'll be like a like unlock have patrons unlock that or something or we could do that on a convention or something but um i feel like i'll i'll say most of the women at warp is on uh team two vicks i am also on team two vicks you were very well versed in Star Trek before you started Women at Warp. What have been some discoveries you've made in delving you know, into the franchise over these past seven years? I think that what was really interesting to me is, even though I watched Star Trek, um, I was really aware of like a lot of kind of I would say popular surface narratives in the fandom, like the idea that there is a unified Gene Roddenberry's vision that we can just follow and and clearly <laughs> cleanly map into the future, and that anything outside of that is not Star Trek. Um, and going back and looking into the history of the fandom and things like the letters that that fans were writing in the '60s, um, as well as like the production memos, showed that. Um, both everything was more complicated. So, like you know, fans were not universally saying, for example, that 
60s Star Trek was super progressive for women. Um, so some of them were, and that's totally valid. Some people were like, miniskirts are super empowering. And some people said, this is ridiculous. How can they be expected to do their jobs? So, um, you know, the idea that um, I think Star Trek has always had this tension between um, trying to present a utopian future and being a bit ahead of its time in representation, but it, there's always been that tension between that and like the reality of the era that the creators and uh, all the hands that are influencing it behind the scenes um, have uh, lived in and is, are kind of inescapable in some ways. Yeah, you know, I, I love the story of Women at Warp just because you you did you popped on the subspace transmissions, you saw how they did it and realized that that's not a good idea. <laughs> and then you went and launched a far more successful podcast. That was exactly <laughs> Sorry, <Kat>. it. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly that. And hopefully from this, you will learn even more things not to do and grow to be even more successful. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate all the those use opportunities. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, Cam and I met at a Star Trek convention, Star Trek Las Vegas, you mm -hmm. know, many, many moons ago now. Um, but we do have a mutual love for Star Trek, but we also have a mutual love for spy movies and thus the Spy Hards podcast. And because you're joining us and you're stepping off of the uh, Enterprise D into the world of spy movies, I need to ask you a few questions to check your credentials. Sure. All right. The first question always is, what's your favorite spy movie? Okay, so um, I would say I would not call myself a spy movie expert, but I've seen like a fair number of the classics. Uh, my favorite is definitely Notorious. Uh, I'm a Hitchcock fan, so yeah. um, where, wherever Hitchcock, and also like more of the ones that kind of go into spy territory than the ones that go into um, stabbing in the shower territory, although also enjoyable. Um, and uh, yeah, I just love uh, the uh, the plotting and the atmosphere and the acting and characterization in that movie. Um, I think that it's uh, like, a, a tight and suspenseful uh, spy movie and um, is kind of everything uh, good. It's also my favorite Hitchcock movie. I think this uh, might be either my first or, or or second favorite Hitchcock. It always battles with uh, North by Northwest for me, which is another spy one. Mm -hmm. But uh, Notorious is maybe the one I reach to more often. It's just it's such a such a good looking film. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just all about Ingrid Bergman, basically. Oh, yeah, I know. She's fantastic in that film. And, and, and to be fair, the moody Cary Grant, mm -hmm. I quite like that. Yeah. He's, he's always like bouncy and happy in all the films I've seen him, except for that. Now, before we started recording, you did mention that you had a worst spy movie, a most disliked spy movie, and I'm very curious to know what that is. Okay, so I will say that um, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying this is the worst spy movie because I definitely have not uh, completed an exhaustive watch of the genre. But you haven't watched think... um, Ballistic X versus Sever yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know if either of you saw the the recent sci-fi movie, The 355. But, oh, is that uh... bad. But it was <laughs> so funny, though. <laughs> yep. So it was one of those things where it was like, my friends and I were like, we haven't seen a movie since the before times. Let's go see something. And there were like two options my friend said this one looks like it it should be fun and i looked up the reviews and i said everyone says this movie is terrible and she said let's go see it anyway um there was only three of us in the theater and we just yelled at the screen the entire time and uh it was amazing mainly oh my gosh 
the idea that they're like on the run from all of these international forces and somehow we're finding people to like give them expensive outfits and do their hair and makeup like and they <laughs> they didn't have time to oh they also didn't show where they found time and places to charge their phones and also how they were like they were carrying on their phones that their families had their numbers to they're supposed to be spies that like their agencies are tracking and they weren't like switching up their devices oh uh, there's so many problems i can't even it was the worst yeah that's the episode we did last week is that correct scott okay <laughs> yeah literally last week in terms of release date anyway okay. exactly last week yeah uh so you you loved it <laughs> oh uh, yeah best movie ever it's great we, we put it on its own list it's so good no, I, 355 is one of those films that if you pull at the thread a little bit, the whole tapestry unravels and it just, yeah, it's a it's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah. So that is your most disliked then. Maybe not hated, but disliked. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I would say that it is a good movie to hate watch because it's mm. entertainingly bad. I hated myself after I watched it. So <laughs> I guess that's uh, the same thing. Um, well, I, I mean, to be fair, you love Notorious and you dislike the 355. I couldn't ask for a better guest. Um, so, Cam, what are we talking about? Yeah, we are tackling the 2017 live-action remake of Ghost in the Shell, starring Scarlett Johansson. There's a lot to tackle with this film. Mm -hmm. a, a lot to talk about. So I think let's do the Letterboxd.com synopsis first. Oh my god, there's a more button. This is going to be very long. <laughs> oh wow. Oh, good grief. Deep breath, Scott. Deep breath. <sighs> Settle in. Settle in. <sighs> right. Ghost in the shell. There's nothing sadder than a puppet without a ghost. In the near future, Major Scarlett Johansson is the first of her kind. A human saved from a terrible crash who is cyber-enhanced to be a perfect soldier devoted to stopping the world's most dangerous criminals. You'd end it there, really. But anyway. When terrorism reaches a new level that includes the ability to hack into people's minds and control them, Major is uniquely qualified to stop it. As she prepares to face a new enemy, Major discovers that she has been lied to. Her life was not saved. It was stolen. She will stop at nothing to recover her past, find out who did this to her, and stop them before they can do it to others. Based on the internationally acclaimed Japanese manga, The Ghost in the Shell. Wow. That is definitely the longest letterbox synopsis you've ever read. And I think it's weird they have the tagline about the puppet when the whole puppet yeah. master element is not in the live action remake. Mm -hmm. Longest and least informative. Yeah, accurate, yeah. What a waste that was. What a waste of everyone's time. I'm sorry, listeners, you had to hear that. <laughs> so, <laughs> this movie had a stink for many reasons. I never saw it in theaters, but I love, and you guys know when you listen to the original episode, listeners, I love the original anime. I could watch it any day. It's great. I didn't go and see this one. One, I wasn't a big fan of the casting, and I think we'll dig into that. And two, I don't, I just, I'm done with these reboots. Even in 2017, I was done with these reboots. But I'm interested to hear, like, Jared, had you seen this in theaters? Did you pay any attention when it came out? No, I had also not seen the original. So I, what I did was I watched this first 
um, so that I was like going into it with a perspective of not having not immediately comparing it to the original. Mm -hmm. I was aware of like the original's impact on sci-fi in general, but um, and then I went and watched the original and then I saw found even more things that I didn't like about it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I my I would say first impression was that it is one of it. I've maybe only seen one or two other movies in my life that were so beautiful and incredibly unmoving. Let's let's put a pin in that because I want to come back to that exact thought. But it, I feel like Cam may have actually seen this in theaters and might be the rare occurrence in the team here. Yes, I recall going to see this in theaters. It must have been a very sleepy day because this was a movie that, as you said, Scott, it kind of arrived with like a stink. It was not screened for critics, mm -hmm. which I remember, you know, was fairly noteworthy with a major expensive release starring Scarlett Johansson. Um, and I remember going with my sister. I don't know why. It might have been a cheap Tuesday and we had nothing going on. And we went just to the local theater by my house where I would often go and see you know, kind of like your Liam Neeson action movies and stuff like that on a sleepy day. And um, my memory was just kind of walking out and really like shrugging with a sense of like, yep, that was two hours in a movie theater. Um, had some nice visuals. Didn't really carry a lot with me. And I think at the time too, it had been a handful of years between when I saw the anime and I saw the live action remake. So like, I wasn't sitting there through the live-action version going, oh, they botched that part. Oh, they screwed that up. I was more sitting there going, was that in the anime? Maybe mm -hmm. it was. Maybe I'm just not remembering. So I didn't have that kind of like angry fan reaction. It was more of a meh kind of reaction. That I think that carried through to a lot of the reviews that did come out after this film anyway. But Jara, I mentioned it because Cam saw it at the time. I was aware the film had come out at the time but didn't see it for a couple of reasons I mentioned. Were you aware of sort of the... Um, yes. Yeah, the, <laughs> the media. Controversy. And, yeah, the controversy yeah. surrounding it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been really engaged in kind of the feminist fan blogosphere for several years. Um, so I was definitely aware of the controversy of, of particularly casting Scarlett Johansson, although watching it, I was like, they, they actually cast a whole bunch of people as, as white that were not white in the original. Um, they added some original characters, um, which some of which I thought were interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I was definitely, that was probably part of the reason I didn't go see it was uh, that to me that there wasn't a lot of justification for that casting. Um, and I would, I would stand by that. I think that it is kind of gross to um you know uh take you know the setting and the atmosphere and like add, even add to it with things like the geisha bot um and then not cast actors from the culture that you're portraying um at least in your principal roles so um yeah i think it was gross i do think like i did read some of the response to it from from some of the creators and I think there are potentially some interesting questions that you could go into around like the way that um, white beauty standards are idealized in parts of Asia, but they like 100% did not go there. And um, so I, I don't think that that's really like a, a good, a, you know, a good explanation for it. I was going to bring this up later in sort of the discussion after we talked, sort of spoken about our review of the film. 
but we're kind of here. I think maybe this is a natural point to talk about it. And I read the some of the, the notes from the original creator of the anime saying he was fine with it. He gave his blessing to Scarlett Johansson. And I, I get that sort of the story approach, whereas you know a shell can be anything and your ghost is your person. I totally get that point. I just question why you would invite this criticism in the first place. I, you know, Not only should you be casting people that, that are appropriate, but why would you go to the lengths of making it such a... A problematic casting. I know getting Scarlett Johansson putting that name on a poster is going to bring people into the theatres. Well, I, we don't know about the box office yet, Cam. Maybe it didn't. But um, I don't know. I just feel like it's such a misstep on before you've even got your film out. Yeah, I, and I also, you know, I I read. Um, I think it was maybe one of the original voice actors' commentaries, like, "Oh well, it was an American movie, so we assumed that the people were going to be played by Americans." But then, like they didn't transpose the setting. So like if they were going to make the whole thing set in like future New York or future San Francisco or something, um, then it would be, I still probably would have some issues with it, but Mm. I think it would be a little less questionable. But like I said, when you're taking the setting and the atmosphere and, and like many of the names kind of whole cloth from the original, but you're just substituting actors of a different race, then that's, that's cringy. No, it really is. I mean, it is a tricky one, isn't it? I, we had we've had a couple of films quite early on in our run where like it, it should have been cast as I think it was, it was um, Remo Williams from the eighties, and and there's a there's a character that's meant to be like Chinese descent, and they had Joel Gray, American actor Joel Gray in yellow face, and you just think, oh dear, yeah, why? There's hundreds of great actors mm. you could have picked, and you mm-hmm. chose Joel Gray. I don't know. and But this is 2017. It's not like it's 1982 where maybe some people would sort of shrug their shoulders at it. And like, this is the classic argument too that Hollywood would make at the time of like, well, we wanted a movie star. And their argument was always, well, there's no, you know, big um, Asian stars we could put in this. There's no Japanese actress we could put as the front line. But the point was they never created those stars. Mm-hmm. And suddenly like, you know, you get a movie, say like Crazy Rich Asians from a couple years ago. And suddenly they go, oh, this makes money. And suddenly you have things like Shang-Chi. The point was they were never willing to gamble on it. They would always say, well, those stars don't exist. Ergo, Scarlett Johansson has to play this role. That's kind of the way they would always defend it. And um, I often feel like when you get cases of people even associated with the original saying, well, we were okay with it. I think it's because they also were just like, well, that's the way Hollywood works. Like, what do we possibly Mm -hmm. say? This is the way this industry has run for you know, like decades upon decades upon decades. It, I, I mean, it's not something we're going to solve in this podcast, of course, but I, I do think it bears acknowledgement, especially in this early stage, that the film was setting itself up for a bit of a disaster. So I think that probably leads us in beautifully to the behind the scenes, Cam. What do you have for us? Well, I was going to say just quickly, like, I feel like this was one of the last big movies to like whitewash Asian characters because there was so much controversy and I, I'm sure there's going to be examples in the future that are also problematic for, you know, various other reasons. But I feel like the, you know, there was a number of kind of hits that Hollywood took because you had that last airbender and then you had Ghost in the Shell. And they were very noisy in terms of the criticism they received to the point where I would be curious if a studio would be even willing to gamble at that now. Like, I think they would just know that they're going to get, you know, a lot of criticism for it. We'll see. I mean, you had uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Con mm-hmm. uh, since then. Uh, that was before, wasn't it? That's 2013. 
Yeah. Oh, right, right. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that, but it was all, yeah, all part of that big era. And I think that there had to be a lot of backlash before people thought like, maybe actually this will hurt our bottom line. And that that's the real tragedy in a sense as well. It's not that they've learned a lesson to go, oh, we should be spotlighting these fantastic actors from other places that aren't America. It's that, oh, the fan reaction will hurt the box office. So we shouldn't do this. Well, never expect morality from Hollywood. It's based entirely on business. If they can make money, then they will, you know, convey those positive messages if people are willing to pay to hear those positive messages. You know what I mean? Like it's driven entirely by, you know, for example, Wonder Woman's a huge hit and they go, oh, cool. Make a lot of female driven action movies. And it's because they were making money. It's not because Hollywood was like, we've got to do the right thing. You know, we have to have equal representation in our movies. It's because there's an audience for it. And we've seen the same thing, as I mentioned, Crazy Rich Asians, Black Panther. That diversity should have always been there. But Hollywood doesn't tend to bend to it until they suddenly have a financial incentive to really do it. You got me thinking about if this was the last one, where maybe they really did learn their lesson, at least in terms of the money side of things. Well, never say never. We'll, we'll see. Mm, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I, I did queue you up before, Cam, but what do you have for us? This was based on the anime, which was created by Shiro Masamune, and the movie was directed by Mamoru Oshii. But in 2008, uh, Variety announced that DreamWorks was planning to make a 3D live-action feature based on Ghost in the Shell. Apparently, DreamWorks had released Ghost in the Shell 2 to U- in the U.S. in 2004, And Spielberg had become enamored with the property. He had a quote. He said, Ghost in the Shell is one of my favorite stories. It's a genre that has arrived and we enthusiastically welcome it to DreamWorks. That's the most like corporate statement I've ever heard (laughs) in my life. It was written by AI. (laughs) (laughs) The most impressive thing to me about it is that it's 2008 and they're going after the rights, I would have thought those rights would have been snapped up like right after The Matrix comes out in 1999. Mm. I'm trying to think when Innocence came out now, Ghost in the Shell 2. 2004. So that's not even that close. That's strange. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So they um, brought on a writer, Jamie Moss, who'd started out as an actor with like bit parts and things like uh, Life or Something Like It and Catch Me If You Can. And he had written the movie Street Kings, which was kind of a popular um kind of gritty cop drama and so he went right from street kings into this and he developed that for about a year and then they brought in leda caligridis who had written shutter island she got this gig before shutter island had even come out and she would go on to do a number of things including she was one of the many writers on terminator genesis um she did um battle uh battle angel alita so like she's someone who they obviously looked at a lot for sci-fi concepts being brought to the screen. And she worked on it for a while until all went quiet for about five years. And then in 2014, they hired Rupert Sanders, the British director who had done Snow White and the Huntsman. That was his big breakthrough. Previous to that, he had done mostly music videos and shorts. And Snow White and the Huntsman, I don't know if you recall, there was like quite a bit of controversy around that. Yeah. I don't remember the controversy. I just remember it was bad. Yeah, that's all I remember as well. It's like a, <laughs> a whiff of a film. Well, I find it interesting that he has two movies, Snow White and the Huntsman and then Ghost in the Shell. And both were surrounded by controversy for different reasons. Um, we don't usually comment too much on personal lives, but Snow White and the Huntsman was where he'd had 
an affair with star Kristen Stewart during production, and it really became very noisy. It overshadowed the entire release of the movie, and um, I was actually I remember being I remember being a bit surprised that the studio was that he was being hired to do another big budget movie because often, you know, it's your debut and there's a lot of noise around you. It kind of can affect your job, but nonetheless, yeah, he was hired in 2014 to make the film. And um, really, since this, he has only done an episode of the TV show Foundation, and he's been attached to the Crow reboot, but I think everyone in Hollywood has been attached to the Crow reboot. It's been in development for like 15 years. I'm currently workshopping it now. (laughs) Scott, you are now attached to do the Crow reboot. That's why you're wearing the makeup. (laughs) That's exactly, exactly. Um, I I do find that that first bit of controversy surprising. It doesn't, I mean, obviously it's personal life stuff, so I don't really want to dig into it, but it's just... yeah. Yeah. Uh, why was that in the news? Why was that? Because of Kristen Stewart, right? Is that the reason why it was big Neil, big news? That was part of it. And to the best of my memory, I believe he was like married at the time. So it it was like, again, it was very like tabloid kind of stuff spilling over. But it became what the big conversations points were as that movie was being released. So, yeah. Okay. Well, he got another film at least. That's right. So, um... The movie apparently went through several writers up until this point. Uh, I couldn't even find the names. There was apparently so many. There was like, I think six or seven people had been working on Ghost in the Shell. And around the point that Rupert Sanders signs on, they're looking at Margot Robbie to star in it. But she bailed to do Suicide Squad instead, which worked out pretty well, actually, for her. That's uh, the catalyst that launched her career, I would say. That's the, the big the big role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also, they were looking at a, you know, Western actor day one then. Yeah, they were. Hmm. Okay. Yep. And so Scarlett Johansson was confirmed shortly after Margot Robbie passed. And she said what drew her in was she was very excited the prospect of a female-driven action film, especially one with a big fan base. So... Uh, In terms of uh, a role with depth, Major Motoko is fantastic. A lot of actors would be chomping at the bit to play that character. So I completely get her passion for it, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And so they brought in yet another writer, uh, William Wheeler, who'd worked mostly in TV doing episodes of like uh, Empire and The Cape. He'd also written Mira Nair's 2012 film, The Reluctant uh, Fundamentalist, as well as Queen of Catway, the Disney film starring Lupita Nyong'o. And uh, he jumped right from Catway into Ghost in the Shell and developed it over about a year and a half. And he said when he left, he said, I don't know completely where they landed quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that sounds like they uh, they took his notes and... Uh, that tracks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It, well, a year and a half as well to be developing a script. That's a long time. Considering some of the screenwriters we've spoken to on the show have cracked out a movie in six months. You just think, wow, this is... Well, this has been gestating since 2008, so I guess, yeah, all right, that makes sense. With up to about eight writers at this point. That also explains the uh, five production companies at the start. Mm-hmm. But they decided to roll their dice on a ninth writer. They went to Jonathan uh, Herman, who had co-written Straight Out of Compton, and he was brought in to overhaul the script. And then they went to another writer after him, which was Aaron Kruger, who'd gotten his start in 1999 on Arlington Road, but he'd gone on to do stuff like Scream 3, The Ring, 
the first or sorry the second and third transformers films dumbo the remake as well as top gun 2 now in theaters oh okay one big hit there at least He's a big studio guy. He works on a lot of stuff. But okay. the the final credits, the way it worked out, was that Jamie Moss, the originator working on the project, got a credit. Um, William Wheeler, who worked on it for a year and a half, got a credit. And then Aaron Kruger got a credit. It's a lot of credits. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, should, I, should I start singing too many cooks in the background as you keep talking? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And just in terms of casting... Talked about Johansson, but there was a note just about uh, Takashi Kita- uh, Kitano, who was a you know very celebrated um, director and actor, and this was his first English language film since 1995, when he crossed the pond to make Johnny Mnemonic. He has not come back since. This makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that a spy film actually? Nah, it's one of those like cyberpunk films. So. It always gets thrown around as one of Keanu's worst roles, or like at least a funny one to look at. I saw it once. I did not laugh. That is my memory. I'm not sure it was angled as a comedy cam. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did not play as an unintentional one either. So. Right. Um, as we said, this movie was released with a lot of controversy around it. It had a budget of $110 million. Domestically, it did 40.6 international 129.3 for a worldwide total of 169.9 so they didn't probably even cover their marketing costs on this one swing and a miss that one although to be fair the original ghost in the shell also made no money well in theaters but it did on home video it was mostly a home video release which you can't rely on anymore exactly yeah according to matt damon anyway that's right um, it landed at number 56 for the year at the worldwide box office, right between John Wick Chapter 2 and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Okay. I know, that's a weird grouping there. Yep. I would imagine that uh, Three Billboards cost less to make. As did John Wick uh, Chapter mm-hmm. 2 as well, yeah. I suppose I've seen John Wick Chapter 2. I've never seen Three Billboards. Is it a good film? I also have not seen it, but... It is based on a play, so and it's set in America, not in a dystopian future, I believe. So, guessing it was cheaper. It's a it's an interesting film in that it was in, it was quite polarizing. Frances McDormand won an Oscar for Best Actress, you know, that year at the Oscars for it. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, various other things. But I enjoyed it at the time. I'd be very curious if I revisited if I would feel the same way. It was one that felt like it was on the cusp of being hashtag problematic, uh, even more so than it was. And I think there's a reason you don't hear it mentioned as much anymore. I think it was one critics really got on board with, you know, in 2017. I don't know that they would do the same thing now. Hmm. Well, that seems to be the topic and the theme of this week's episode. So uh, things not to talk about now. But uh, anything else for us, Cam? Yeah, just the top three for that year. Number one was Star Wars Episode Eight. Number two is Beauty and the Beast, the live-action remake. And number three was The Fate of the Furious. Franchises. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What the state of Hollywood, eh? How fun. To be fair, this is also a franchise. That's also true. And John Wick is a franchise. 
and we cover a lot of franchises on this podcast. Careful, Scott. <laughs> we love franchises. And you, you think you liked three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Just wait until you see four billboards, the sequel. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, I think we've arrived at our destination. It's time to talk about this film and initiate the hack. Jarrah, you're our guest. You always go first. You've watched this film and you watched the original, which I want to sort of t- talk to you about a little bit as well. But what did you think of Ghost in the Shell 2017? Yeah, well, like I said, overall, I think it was gorgeous but soulless. Um, it basically, it, it, it had no ghost itself. It was, it was all shell. Um, I think... I like that line. That um, I reckon like immediately i was drawn in by like colors and the um you know the the setting of the scenes and the visuals um but i hoped that i would find more that i would feel like emotionally drawn to the characters and i wasn't really to mostly anyone i will say that i think juliette binoche was one of the better parts of the movie and i think that adding that character was not necessarily a terrible idea um as dr ule um but like she was the only one that i felt like emotionally drawn to in any way maybe the mom that shows up and makes tea but she's not really around for long enough for you to really really care about um i think the other thing that i thought was that the um political dynamics were um overly simplistic and to the point of being naive um the idea that you would have um you know their uh section nine um fighting this essentially like robotics company um that was working to some degree with the government but that the government would ultimately side with section nine and like by extension side with the people against the corporation i was like no i don't i don't buy it would be that easy (laughs) um and um you know i don't think they were presenting it in quite that black and white of a way but it seemed like they just made the story overly simplistic so those are just like some of the kind of high level pieces. The other thing I thought was that the music let it down. I think that the um, the soundtrack was trying to be kind of like electronic and futuristic, but it it again like you, it's possible to make powerful electronic music, but this was not it. It just felt kind of like dry and it was just there, I guess. Yeah, I definitely got that vibe as well. It felt almost just like generic sci-fi wallpaper score, mm-hmm. where if you're going to really swing with your visuals, at least try to do something interesting with the music. Yeah. And they keep using like little clips of the original score, which was phenomenal. Still a score I'll go and listen to. But like, why would you tease with a much better score? Like, do something, either don't mention the good one and just do your own thing, or... Just use the old one, because the old one worked just fine. Yeah, like a new orchestration of the original score would have worked, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, Cam, what about you? I found this movie to be kind of... I, the word I underlined was sludgy when I was watching it, where 
I admire a lot of the visuals of the movie. I'm not sure. I remember at the time they were really selling this as like uh, Rupert Sanders, the visionary director, which was a, a popular term they would throw around for people back, you know, a few years ago. They'd be like, oh, yes, Zack Snyder, the great visionary director. And they would attach that to any kind of up and coming director who made things that didn't look like cardboard. If they were at just, least. Uh, just wait until you see my The Crow movie. <laughs> visionary director Scott Hardy. <laughs> yeah. So like it felt a little bit blade runner-esque but it felt like it was very busy it felt like he had invested a lot of time into developing the visual world of ghost in the shell and i think it's sometimes hard to translate you know animation to live action i thought they did a pretty good job of walking that line but like this movie has no pulse i mean never never mind as jara said a ghost it has no pulse either where the mystery of it, I feel like they were trying to simplify it mm -hmm. for North American audiences because the original can get quite complex. Um, but I wouldn't say that they made it less confusing. I think they actually made it more confusing in ways where I really was struggling to understand at points like why they were doing what they were doing. I didn't really understand what Kuzey was even up to because in the original, it's very clear what's going on with the Puppet Master. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, they made it kind of vague and yes you have a big reveal of what it all means but they also kind of remove any of the questions the original has so much in terms of philosophy and just sci-fi questions you can kind of leave the movie with whereas here i'm like well it felt like they kind of stripped a lot of that out mostly to probably make an action film that would please you know like a friday night crowd but also like it almost felt like it was like a springboard for what could be like a action franchise like they were almost taking cues from like superhero movies or something at the end when she's doing the invisa suit and jumping off the building so yeah just like one of those movies where i'm like there's elements here i like i can understand why scarlett johansson made this movie it feels kind of like a mainstream version of what she was almost trying to do in under the skin which was a much 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 better sci-fi movie but overall i just walked away kind of shrugging my shoulders once again it's it's interesting. I think all three of us, because I'll chuck my two cents in, have come up with uh, oversimplified. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I wrote down lacked depth, uh, serviceable, mm -hmm. uh, words I circled. Um, I, but I went back and I, I was thinking about the original film and there's a quote that sticks in my head. It's one of my favorite quotes in the film. So I'm going to bastardize it slightly, I think. It's simple. Oversimplify and you breed in weakness. It's slow death. Very slow in this case, because boy, did I have trouble watching this film. <laughs> I, I don't think it helps that I'm a massive fan of the original. Uh, and so I'm constantly going, well, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have done that. Why have you changed this? Why have you changed that? I think if you meet the film on its own terms, maybe it's a different experience. And I did try to do that in the second viewing, which bumped it up a little bit for me. And there's bits I did enjoy here. Um, but I just go back to questioning, like you both said, why would you simplify it and yet make it muddier at the same time? Making it more like a, a, a origin story for the major, stripping her of her identity in a sense, is, could be a really interesting concept. But instead you're just left wondering what's going on. And it doesn't help that much like the Puppet Master is a very simple concept with a lot of depth to it. This this chap who I forget the name of now, Cam, what's the villain's name? Kuze. Thank you, Kuze. Or who I refer to as Max Headroom <laughs> in my notes. <laughs> um 
just I don't know what he wanted really. I don't know what he was doing, and I didn't really feel any threat from him. And not to mention, the original version is ninety minutes long. This is an hour and fifty minutes long, and I spent more time with Bato. It felt like in the original than I did this. I had no idea who anyone else was. It's only because I knew the characters that I could sort of imprint my thoughts on them. But really, it pays no mind to anyone. You have no idea what the constitution of Section Nine is. And I think it's it's you you had more runtime and you said less. What's up with that? Yeah, I think you also have like less sense of her position within the hierarchy and her um like her beliefs outside of this specific mission. Um, but like yeah, if you had asked me what is the point of this movie not having or like what are the messages you're supposed to take away from this movie, I guess I would say um corporations want to turn us into robots and we shouldn't let them and that uh people need to know where they're from and that is those are clearly not like the main takeaways from the original which i think are way more interesting (laughs) you could you could write novels you could write textbooks about some of the, the the theories and the concepts in the original ghost in the shell i'm not sure i could write a pamphlet about the theories in this film no, that's uh, uh, an excellent point. And, you know, you were talking about Cousay and, like, how murky kind of the mystery is because that's the driving force of what at least the first chunk of the movie is about. And they don't do a very good job establishing, like, why an audience should care. Forget us. You know, I mean, Jerry, you hadn't seen, you know, Ghost in the Shell 95 beforehand, but, like, you did afterwards and you can now talk about it in that regard. Imagine you'd never seen the 95 one. You just go and see this. I think you'd like walk away. Your experience would be like, I don't really know what was going on. Like, I think like in many ways you almost have to have seen the 95 one, which definitely was not the goal of this movie. Like they wanted this to be a big budget mainstream movie. I did definitely have to look up like a Wikipedia article about what the plot of the movie was while I was watching the movie to try to figure out what I was supposed to be seeing. Yeah. I I was, I was unfortunately reminded of a film that we've been sort of, recalling back to recently especially with 355 last week which is salt with angelina jolie that can't define the constitution of your lead and so if you're asking people to come back for a sequel or you're setting up some sort of cinematic universe then why would i go back to see the sequel i do not know who the major is by the end of this film except that i is it supposed to be i'm just gonna ask this question now is it supposed to be setting up the anime at the end of this film because it has the same shot at the end where she's jumping off. Mm. And she knows her name. It's now it's Major Motoko. You can go for the kill. And Like, do you mean were, were they trying to set up a sequel that would have been more the plot of, like, with the puppet master and stuff? Yeah, like, I, I feel like they were evoking that first shot. Well, not the opening credits, but the first shot of the anime at the end of this film. But they do use it at the beginning sort of as well when yeah. she goes into the, the dinner party through the window in this case or like the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the wall or something and then at- attacks the geisha bot. Um, and like honestly the moments that they like directly lifted from the original were like the moments that I had written down like that was a cool moment. <laughs> the, the stealth fight in the water yeah, with the exact same backdrop mm-hmm. of those sort of apartment blocks. That still looks fantastic. Yeah. But you just go, well, you just lifted that from an anime. But then The Matrix did the same thing, and we all clap when we watch The the Matrix. So that's not a bad thing, necessarily. 
I do. Th- I think that final shot really was owing a lot to that whole era of superhero movies where they ended with like you know Spider-Man swinging at the camera or Batman jumping off a building, Iron Man flying around. It was like they wanted their big impact hero shot, and they probably sat down and they're like, "What's the most iconic thing about this character?" It's this scene that they have, you know, pretty much recreated the start of the movie, which is her jumping off the building, doing the dive in that suit. And I think they were like, that's our button at the end as well. I think the thing about her going back and living with her mom is super weird on a number of levels. (laughs) I mean, first of all, I thought it was really weird if there was like this big conspiracy with all of these experiments happening that they like left living relatives around. Um, First of all, that was odd um, because they just randomly killed a lot of other people um and then that she could just like go pick up like a normal domestic life with her mom was very odd that's the sequel i want to see like she's making pancakes and breaks the frying pan because she's too strong or something yeah exactly yeah like explaining to her mom what happened this this has been quite a journey she's been on (laughs) Yeah, like the end of the original, they want to unsettle you. The original, the end of this, they want to settle you. Like they show that she has a happy ending, essentially. Like, I mean, I know there's, they're maybe being like, but also robotics are scary, but they don't put her on a kid body. That's also true. That would have been amazing if they had. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the things that we liked. I think that's important to acknowledge that films are hard to make and there are good things in everything. So, Jarrett, you first give us something that you liked. Yeah, well, like I said, I like Juliette Binoche. I think that um, having a character that, um, you know, cared about her and saw her as a human, even when she wasn't sure she was human, was one of the more successful elements of the film and actually something that, like, I don't think hurt the original narrative by adding it. Um, I think, I mean, I think in the original, like Beto kind of fills a bit of that role um, by like always treating her like, like she's an equal Um, in, in this case, I think that they maybe split that up kind of. Um, So I, um, I like that. And then like the fact that she's in a complicated position because she also was performing these experiments. But I think, um, she had a more interesting arc than most people in that movie and that it was generally a, a successful ad. I thought that character worked quite well to the Juliette Binoche character where it at least gave kind of a human voice to like the creation process of that character and someone you could actually have that dialogue with, but it didn't feel like forced. Like sometimes you get the real exposition characters thrown in there. This one I actually... I bought the relationship between the two characters and they had just enough material together that I actually cared about it. So in terms of like injecting a new character, sometimes that can go really wrong. But I thought here, I agree with you, Jarrah. Like it actually worked for me. Yeah, I, I totally agree too. I think if you're having like a, a, a look at what this major is comprised of and you're talking about like the creation of her, this is, I don't think it's ever spoken about in the 95 version that this is Matoko's first mission. But this is like the birth of this version of the major so of course you would have a maternal figure and um, to guide her through this process and i love that and i think that's a really important thing it's a shame that she gets off at the like hour and 10 minute mark mm-hmm. but i guess then the, the the baton pardon the pun is passed on to um her real mother in a sense maybe not as successfully but i think i think that's a, a great addition and i i like the moments that they spend together in the film mm-hmm. Uh, Cal, what about you? Something you liked? 
So I think for me, it's hard to like point to a lot of elements and say I really liked them because it was more like which ones didn't bother me. <laughs> but I will say in terms of like some of the world building, I thought it was fairly interesting to me. I liked sequences like right off the bat, the whole sequence of her being born, essentially like taking her first breaths and everything I thought was really well done. Like I, if you're going to try to connect an audience to this source material, um, an audience that has never been through it, I thought that was a very smart way to do it, to show your character actually being born in that way and making kind of the impact of those first breaths really count. Um, I thought that stuff was set up well. I liked bits like when we go to that scene, you know, right off the bat where you're going in and they've got like the geisha bots. I mean, that is a crazy design and it's really eye-catching. There's a reason they work those into every trailer. And um, I don't understand why Michael Wincott was there for three seconds, but I always appreciate seeing Michael Wincott. That's just a, you know, tick in the plus column for me just in general. But um, yeah, it was those kind of visuals and even just like the streets, the big neon characters, the sort of thing we would see continued on in like, you know, the second Blade Runner film and many other things. But I thought here there was like a sense of kind of like that overwhelming cityscape that really, you know, worked well for that character. Especially some of the low down shots where she's traveling around with Bato, feeding the dogs. And yeah. it's like everything's closing in on them. There's there's no room to breathe in this city. Um, I, I, I agree. I think that's a success. And like the visuals of the, the geisha bot is great. I think a lot of that was actually real as well, not CG. Um, tip my hat to that. Um, good stuff. I don't understand, though, why the geisha bot starts screaming <laughs> at one point, like opens up its face to be really terrifying looking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I think if you start again pulling the threads of this film, it will fall yeah. apart. But I, on on the surface, I think it looks great. I agree. And I think in terms of showcasing a lot of the cybernetic elements that you know various characters have, they did a really good job of making it seem alternately cool, but also kind of touching into some almost like Cronenbergian body horror or something, where there's elements where you kind of go like, oh, like when the woman's eyes flip up and she has like the binoculars, yeah, that was that, cool, you know, show up. Or like the the fast moving fingers that were you know in the original, but you see them actually done in live action, and it's like oh, that kind of gives you like a shudder, but at the same time you kind of admire how cool the design looks. It actually, um, you mentioned the body horror side of things. I actually made a note about it and a lovely Star Trek connection having Jara here as well. Is is it reminds me of the Borg, especially in that there's yeah. that sequence where they're in that where they've like kidnapped people and they're experimenting on them and basically assimilating them into like a collective. Um, it reminded me a lot of like the Dark Frontier two part from Voyager, where you get the real sense of horror of assimilation. Um, yeah, I got flashbacks to that, so that was quite cool to see. Yeah, of course, sure, I can say that. And I like the bit where they had the major um, captive and like pulled the you know the piece off her face. Yeah, like moments like that were really effective. Like if you're gonna do something like this, make it visceral. I agree. Yeah, and like the part you know her arms ripping off that like worked really well in that version as well. I didn't think they'd do that when mm-hmm. I saw her jump on the tank. I, I thought because that's gonna that's gotta look pretty gruesome in real life, and they actually really lean into it. They only it. had her lose one arm, but yes. Yeah. You see, like the, her back, like spread out and rip apart as well. Yep. That's really gross. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that last bit's a bit of a CG mess, but that, that bit looks cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I just want to shout out to Scarlett Johansson. Actually, uh, problematic casting to aside, I think she does a good job with the material she's given. I think even to the point where a lot of the sequences she doesn't uh, blink. Right, much like the major in the original, she has obviously studied the original and is trying her best to do this. Um, 
and she's able to deliver a lot of a lot of emotion while being emotionless which again another star trek connection brent spiner does so well um in the next generation i think scarlett Anson does a fantastic job as the major this one's so tough right because it's like she never should have gotten the job and or mm. taken the job um but can you say like she delivers on the concept of the major i think she does like i think she gets across quite a bit in the same way she did in under the skin which is sort of like this someone existing within a body that's not theirs like i think that aspect really does come across quite well i think like she delivers on seeming kind of like the animated major in terms of like her vocal patterns and and things which are, are generally kind of flat and kind of uh like flat demeanor which i assume she's trying to be show like there's a lot of stuff happening internally but it's not on her face but um mm. i i don't know when i was watching it having not seen the original i definitely was thinking about like voyager seven of nine and how like i wanted to see more inner turmoil especially by the part where she starts because pretty early on she starts realizing she doesn't know everything and um i wanted to see that like more of that war actually playing out in her face and her voice I think you're given like more in the original anime of just you know Matoko talking through how she's experiencing things and it, and your especially that moment the scene on the boat is the one I always go back to where she's talking with Bato mm-hmm. and they try and do that in this film and it's nowhere near as emotional or impactful it's more just a tossed off five minute scene. Yeah, they really stripped that scene down to nothing really because in the um in the original it's her underwater talking about how like she experiences like hope like mm-hmm. there's some optimism to that experience she has and in the the new version it's just kind of like very emo because it's meant to mirror like her being birthed yeah. at the start and underwater because they even do the reflection in this film they do that double reflection thing but yeah they it's lip service mm-hmm. unfortunately um which i think probably brings us over to the dislike column unless anyone else have any likes left no. <laughs> nope. <laughs> right, though. Straight on over to dislikes. Um, Jarrah, go for it. Well, one thing I haven't mentioned that I really noticed upon watching the original is that the new one really lacks scenes of everyday life. So the original has a lot of scenes inter- in between the key scenes that just set the atmosphere by showing like people at the market, people waiting for the train. And in this um universe i was thinking you know like if i had to explain how a day worked in this world it was like everyone was either part of these groups or like elite hackers or super wealthy like teched out people or they were living in slums and were anarchists and like tea lady seemed to come out of nowhere um because you never saw that there were like random middle class people that were like had had not too many modifications and you also you miss out on that scene that's in the original where she talks to the guy that um is a part of their group that has minimal minimal mods and says you know you're important because if we're you you cited this scene if you know if we're too familiar then uniformity breeds death um so you um you miss out on like all of the the fuzzy middle in this movie i think so that that was one thing i didn't love there's like a scene where she goes to meet i think it, she's a sex worker i believe that's the implication i i got the same sense yeah sure I, apparently there's a longer version of the scene that was cut in post where they actually kiss 
which I don't think was necessary. But um, that's meant to be the major exploring her humanity. That's how I read that scene. But it, I, I don't want to say lip service. That's a pun. But you know, it it it's just a veneer. I don't think it really digs beneath the surface on that. It felt like a moment that, in isolation, the filmmakers go, "Look, we're doing some like real sci-fi here," but it's kind of cut down so like into such a small scene and then buried in this movie that's like a lot of action it's very like overwhelmed by its visuals so i feel like that scene doesn't really like jump out the way it should like that should be like a real showcase moment for the character but it it kind of you kind of don't remember it by the time the movie's over i knew right i knew because i wrote it down i I don't remember the scene particularly well and i I saw it on the imdb trivia about the extended version but i honestly don't even know what scene you mean (laughs) Yeah. Wow, there you go. There you go. That says it all. Uh, Cam, a dislike for us. The villain. Kuze. Well, he's not the villain, but like, Kuze, his like, motivation is pretty much non-existent off the top of the movie. And when he does finally show up, we get Michael Pitt, who I've liked in some things and not really cared about in others, because he was in, was it Scott Criminal? The other I was just checking what he was in. I think it is criminal. I'm just Yeah, uh, he was like a checking. hacker in that. Wasn't he like yes. a mysterious hacker they were like tracking through the movie? The Dutchman. Why is Michael Pitt the person that's like mysterious that our me- our main characters are hunting throughout like the first sections of a movie? I mean, I, I wish he had that uh, robo body in Criminal. That would have made that film a lot better. You know, you look at the original and what the puppet master ultimately meant, which was like merging with her to create this new you know, entity going forward. Whereas here, like, we finally get together with him. He's one of those characters that's very underwritten, and we just find out that, like, they hung out together in, like, a uh, anti-augmentation group or something like that. Like, they were protesters together and got captured and turned into these augments. And uh, the final moment is, after they're both, like, dying, they don't join. He's just like, well, see you later. <laughs> and then a sniper kills him, and you're like, Okay, well, I guess that's sad, I guess. Her, her reaction means it's sad, of course. Sure, but... <laughs> not earned. They just do nothing with that no. character. Like, yeah, you, you didn't do anything. If you're going to build up a character like that, you have to, I think... I think the audience has to understand by the time that character shows up, why they're important. Like, what this means and what it means mm-hmm. to our main character. And I don't think they communicate that well at all. What was his mission? I thought that he was seeking revenge on the people that experimented on him because he was killing all the scientists and that he wanted to like meet her to decide whether like she was also someone how like how he felt about her because like we're essentially the same and you could either be on my side or you can be on their side. But I agree that it like didn't really wasn't super compelling. And he also like had a lot of resentment because he and several others had been like the failed experiments, but she was the uh, the successful one. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to level any sort of criticism, Michael Pitt. I think it's really just the story here that that let him down. But then, you know, the film has an, another major villain that's, I think, even worse. It's just corporation bad. Right. Oh, yeah. And the guy who was the face of the corporation cutter <laughs> was extremely non-intimidating. He did get to play with the old Star Trek Picard, uh, like hover handle thing. Where you that was I, I found that funny. Apparently, they were doing that in 2017. Mm-hmm. There's like a scene where he's like leaning across a table and like threatening Aramaki, and 
you you're just like, yeah, I don't buy it at all. I was waiting for him to just pull out his revolver and blow him away right back then. Like you, you knew he was mm-hmm. the bad guy from the second you see it. You can read it. It's uh, it's a shame, really. Two dimensional. We'll go back to that. Sim- simplistic. We'll go back to that word. Cutter's the type of character who's very one-dimensional, but at least in a world of, like, say, like the RoboCop movies or something, they would give their one-dimensional corporate guys, like, real personalities and cast them with actors who just have a weird, like, you know, screen presence, so you'd remember them. But, like, Cutter, boy, like, he is just kind of a blank slate. And you put him opposite, you know, Aramaki, and Katano is just such a screen presence, even though it feels like he's in a movie by himself a lot of this film. It feels like they were just kind of shooting scenes with him in isolation for most of this. But nonetheless, he is so much more screen presence. And just putting the two guys in a room together is just really unfair to the Cutter character. I would not buy this film for a dollar. (laughs) Nice. I appreciate that. I rented it for $3.99. Oh, no. uh, So did I. $3.99, I'm never getting back. (laughs) The price you pay for being on Spy Hard's podcast, I can only apologize. <laughs> we will not be refunding. <laughs> no refunds. It was cheaper than seeing the 355 in a theater, so. <laughs> I paid you... to see it twice. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, you did, yeah. Wow. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got? in our crosshairs this month. Well, how about some sci-fi of the George Lucas variety? Because we are going to tackle Attack of the Clones, the second in our ongoing prequel coverage. Mmm, listen you will. (laughs) And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Um... I just want to talk about the the heavy handedness of this film. Talk about like hand holding you to your metaphor. Even at the beginning, they're like, "This is your shell, and you're a ghost." Because that's the title <laughs> of the film. And you just think, "Oh, good grief!" Let us like understand some subtext a little bit. Give us a chance. First five minutes, they've explained the whole idea, the whole concept, and at any chance they can, they will be like. Well, yeah, you're ghosting. Oh, that's a shell right there. And they just will not let anything be subtle. Yeah. It's 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 bludgeoning at some point. It's it's overpowering and I think it's probably to do with the dialogue being reworked by fifty eight people. Well it's so often the case when they're like adapting something like this to the screen and they are insecure about getting it across where it feels like that mix of on the nose and murky at the same time. It's always interesting when that happens, where you'll see a movie like that, and you just sit there and go like, I can kind of track this, but at the same time, it feels very confused. And I think the you know several army of writers uh, obviously you know lends a bit of evidence as to why that might be the case. This movie was also produced by Avi Arad and Ari Arad, 
who um, you know worked on the Spider-Man franchise. They were doing the Amazing Spider-Man films at this time as well. And those were movies with a heavy amount of producer interference. I don't know that that's the case with Ghost in the Shell. But when I look at the storytelling in both those Spider-Man films and here, there's some similarities. With the Because I mentioned earlier the five production companies involved yeah. in putting this film out. The 17 minutes of production slates at the start of the film? Yeah, yeah. I, I was worried I was watching the wrong film for a while. What does that mean for the like the actual film? Because we see it a lot now with these sort of co-financed films. Do they have an influence on the final project or is it just about the money? Um, it depends. I would guess most of that was just financing where it was like no one wanted to foot the $110 million budget for this alone. So they kind of farmed it out to several corporations okay now i i did have a question it, it does fall in my sort of dislike category because it's well it's about the film i don't like it we've all compared this to the original now jerry you watched this first and then the 1995 original but yeah. you've seen both in in sequential uh, the opposite of sequential order i suppose but um if you took that away if you took the 1995 film away from the conversation for a second does this film hold up at all? Um, I mean, my after I watched it, I thought, okay, cool. I can see some things here that influenced other sci-fi. Um, but overall, my my main reaction was shrug. Um, I don't really know that it holds up that much on its own. I think the you know missing. The, those really big, important philosophical themes, uh, which I think are the most interesting parts to explore and that really, like, you can't ever conclude the debates around those. I feel like you can conclude, at least, like, you can get a reasonable consensus for, like, yeah, we probably shouldn't be cyborgs and, you know, at least not controlled by a corporation. <laughs> I wonder how much of that was also a sense of like, they wanted this to be a franchise and they're like, kind of like with the Star Trek 2009 where they're like, okay, give the audience like a kind of an action film. And then next time we're going to get philosophical, which is something I remember them saying a lot in the press, which uh, we can debate whether into darkness was philosophical really. But uh, nonetheless, I remember them saying that a lot on the press rounds. And I wonder if like that was the case here where they were like, Give the audience like a sci-fi action movie. And next time we can really delve into the themes of this. I don't know. I would be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if they would be saying that back then. It definitely felt like they were trying to make it more accessible. But like we've said, it didn't really work. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it really holds up. I think that if you if the first one hadn't existed and this was just like birthed independently, then the things that were groundbreaking about it would have previously happened in movies like the matrix. Um, and so you just think that it was rehashing those other things and uh, that other than, I mean, I, it kind of reminds me of um, what was that movie Valerian and the, the one that's based on the French graphic novel. Don't ask me to recite the whole yes. title, but yes, Valerian. Um <laughs> In that it was like one of those things where it was like, there was a lot of effort put into this. It looked really good. No one ever talks about it anymore. It's Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> and you know that because it's on our list to cover one day. 
That's true. It does Uh-oh. count as a spy movie. Uh-oh. This is also a film that I feel like it didn't impact people because they'd seen The Matrix. And also The Matrix, mm-hmm. you know, the second and third at this point. So, like, unless this movie hits a home run at what it's doing, I don't think people care that much because it feels kind of samey. And this is also many years after the whole cyberpunk craze where you had a lot of movies that had a similar kind of vibe. I, I just, I wonder, like, well, actually, Jerry, you're the correct person to ask. You saw this film. Did you immediately watch the 1995 version the same day, or was it like a couple of days later? You, it you was a couple of days later. In that period in between the two, were you just dreading having this conversation with us because of just how your reaction to the film and not having that as much to say about the film? Um, yes. I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to say other than talking about the, like, simplest, simplest oversimplification of the, um, uh, the politics and, um, you know, some of the things that I highlighted that I liked, um, and disliked overall, but the comparisons in terms of, like, the atmosphere, the music, the scenes of everyday life, the pieces about um how the world building and the philosophical ideas were done better in the original those were those were all given to me from watching the original yeah funny that and i mean bateau that character that may be one of the worst crimes this movie commits as well is that like i was so into that character in the original in the 1995 and it wasn't a case where it's like kind of a underwritten character in the original that they would struggle to try to make more meaningful it's like they took a really cool character and made him less interesting like how is that possible they they were handed a gift there i just like i think by taking out those key moments where he has a role as like a significant significant confidant and but mo- i think more like the end where he saves her and then puts her into a child body is like super key in his character and losing that just makes it seem like he's actually not that important they gave him the eyes. Yeah, I was just about to make a joke about mm-hmm. the eyes. Like it looks terrible in in real life. Yeah, I'd rather he kept his normal human <laughs> eyes or like put some sunglasses on or something. Let's I... Give him the banana clip. <laughs> <laughs> Instant improvement. You remove an actor's eyes. It's like how much of a dramatic performance you're getting <laughs> across. That's always like the curse of like playing Cyclops in an X Men movie. It's like, well, there goes the actor's number one trait. People always thought that way we'd have no Mandalorian. Mm, good call. Good call. Got you there, Cam. Got you there. Now, I, well, I, I mentioned it on my like top line bit earlier on. This film has no time for any of its other characters apart from the major and yet has 20 minutes more in terms of runtime. Yeah. That was another thought. I was like, how is the original shorter? And like Togusa, um, who's played here by Chin Han, like that's a character who has something to do in the original. He has a whole conversation scene that's got it's got the line you quoted earlier in this podcast that's in a conversation with him he is you almost wonder why even take the job i mean hopefully he got a decent paycheck and whatever out of it but like there's nothing at all on the page for him to do whatsoever he's barely in the movie major gets like seriously injured at least once or twice extra in this and like has to get patched up which didn't feel horribly necessary to me yeah and there's that like whole weird scene with like the slimy dude and like being chained to the pole and stuff like and like the flashbacks of the burning pagoda oh god yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's deep that's deep i i did like the moment though where she was like connected 
to the other um augment or whatever the bot um and like had that sequence where she was being like smothered by all of these like that was cool. weird figures mm-hmm. like that was a cool image very nightmarish see when it tries to be slightly different maybe reaching for a higher level of filmmaking it gets interesting because look at the you, you've got this canvas you've got this whole arena to play in and they just choose to play it safe this whole way through and just make this simplified bowl of porridge well i noticed with rupert sanders with his work on snow white like that was a movie that also looked very visually impressive but had like no pulse whatsoever and this is a movie like loaded with action there's you know martial arts stuff there's a lot of you know shootout kind of stuff none of it's exciting no it's like he can kind of create these worlds but he cannot make them feel alive it's it's interesting because i think jared said it earlier the the best bits of this film is when it's just copying the original like that first fight sequence where she smashes through the glass and takes down the geisha bots is stunning there's no wonder it was all over the trailers it's probably the biggest most expensive part of the film and the, the shootout when she's you know, in the water but like that end bit where it's meant to be your final battle, it's all dark blue and grey and you can't see anything and they've got the spider tank. You're trying to riff off the original. But like we, we see through you at this point, Hollywood. We know you're trying to hide your low-budget CG by making it dark. Um, it just looks bad. I was also, you know, I will have to say, um, after Wild Wild West, I was very unimpressed by that live-action spider. <laughs> <laughs> I did not think we'd get a Jim West Desperado mention in Ghost in the Shell 2017, but I'm here for it. Another spy movie we will Another be covering. Right after Valerian and the City of a Thousand Worlds or whatever it's called. Yeah. What a what a double bill. That's right. Um, well, just before I think we go to the knock list, any final notes around? Anyone got anything? Jarrah, what about you? Um, I I feel like I pretty much covered it. I I will just say that I think that they should have just let a good thing be and let someone else get the rights and do it better. Yeah, I'm not going to fight you on that one. Um, I'm glad you got to see the original, though. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we, yeah, we brought that to your yes. your your, your catalogue of films. Cam, any notes? Um, a couple things. I kind of like that they recreated the Garbage Man uh, scene. Sure. from the first film like i thought that was done reasonably well and they actually tied it into you know the binoche story briefly there so that was reasonably effective and then just a very silly one when they went to avalon apartments it made me think of frankie avalon scott from um dr goldfoot and the bikini machine just a few weeks ago oh no i'm just back to <laughs> driving through san francisco for 15 right, minutes yeah. now but uh yeah that's a horrible flashback i'll never yeah, I'll never quite shake that one. Um, I'm just talking any any notes I've got. Um, I made my Max Headroom joke, so I can't bring that back. Um, I I suppose I have a, a final question, and I'll, I'll throw it out to the floor. This is obviously a uh, I'm not say obviously a bad film. I'm sure some people enjoyed it, but we didn't enjoy it. I think it's fair to say on a few different levels. Do you think that the bad reception, the bad box office to this film was to do with the sort of the cloud looming over the production or was it more to do with just it being a bad film? I think it was a combination of factors. I think that the first thing you heard about it was probably something bad. A lot of their target audience who were Western audiences that hadn't seen the original didn't care enough to go see this thing in the first place. So you're interesting going 
to just see like a Scarlett Johansson cyberpunk movie when you heard there's also this big controversy around it was I think taken down a bit um and then you know it also was not that compelling once you were actually in the theater so I would imagine you didn't get a lot maybe of repeat views or or like good references from people who had to go see it yeah I'm trying to think back to 2017 if they weren't screening this for critics that would imply that they weren't confident in the movie and I don't remember how much of a marketing push they put behind it I do remember seeing the trailer a few times and them really selling you know the image of Scarlett Johansson in like the you know the white suit jumping off the building like I remember them really pushing that but like I don't I would be curious to know like in terms of like how expensive a marketing push they put behind it um but I think it was just a mix it was no buzz um movie stars don't sell movies anymore so the idea of Scarlett Johansson in, in a kind of murky looking sci-fi action movie is not going to guarantee ticket sales on an opening weekend just because people like black widow um and probably just we live in a very ip driven age where people buy tickets based on things they recognize and ghost in the shell doesn't really come across as well especially to a younger audience who would be the ones buying those tickets i just we've had so um we've had quite a few female-led films recently and a lot of bad examples, Salt 355, this. Um, and I just, I want, I want better. I want more and I want better. Because I think it. we've had close to 100 films at this point. And I just, I think it's like 20 female-led spy films and then 80 not. Or maybe the mix is slightly off there, but. I just want better for our actors. Um, and this, again, is another misfire. I'm longing for... I, I can't wait to talk about Atomic Blonde or something like that. That will mm -hmm. just uh, raise the standard a little bit. Or I feel like if this had come out now in the as like a streaming TV show um, and they had put the effort into the marketing and like to getting people excited about the world and getting the buzz among fans of the original to their friends... Um, like I'm thinking like Wheel of Time and and some of these other properties that have come out that had like a cult following and have, have attained a broader following. I also think you could have done way more justice to it and people would have been more willing to have like a quite complex plot at this age of TV than we were in 2017 in movies. Yeah. If you made this like a six episode series or something and put the effort into really telling that story properly, could probably work. And especially if you had like more of a um, like a really strong writer behind it and showrunner versus an army of studio writers trying to kind of wrestle this thing into a two-hour action film, you might actually have something. I remember um, when we discussed the original a couple of months ago now, we had Danny from the Anime Summit podcast on, and she was telling us that you know in Japan, this film isn't particularly highly regarded. Most people think the, the anime the tv version and the series is much better the uh, i think standalone complex ghost and show standalone complex far highly regarded and of course has a much longer runtime because it's a tv show and it's able to explore these deeper issues and that tells me that i think the 1995 was just one of those very rare occurrences of lightning in a bowl and they just struck gold and i think it, it, it in the wrong hands that film could have been just a forgotten anime no one talks about now and we wouldn't have had this remake and it Maybe even though it had 
you know, 58 cooks in the kitchen. Yep, that was right. Um, it, <laughs> it still wouldn't turn out right, so I had to check myself on that one there. It, it, it wouldn't matter. It, it, you can have 200. It wouldn't turn out right. Yeah, and actually Danny had never watched this version, so that also tells you something. It does. Well, I think it's time. Knock list. Ghost in the Shell did make the knock list. Can this one also make the knock list? It'd be the first time that a remake, I think, has made the knock list so far. Uh, Jerry, you're our guest. You go first. Yay or nay, is it making the knock list? Uh, no. No, it is not. I think it's a fair answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you hadn't telegraphed that one for the last hour or so. I think, I think you really built up to it, really. Yeah. It was a solid C on like a letter grade scale. Serviceable was my yes. magic word serviceable uh cameron yeah no for me as well like we've tackled far worse things this has a few interesting merits about it but it's a it's such a just like nothing of a dramatic experience and so yeah no i think it's also worth pointing out that the spy connective tissue in the original doesn't really exist in this yeah you get like the section nine being the sort of covert operation it's like counterterrorism, um, I think is what it's sort of billed as in this. Yeah, yeah, but they it, it's weird. It's one of the many things they're filing the edges off of. Yeah. Yeah, well, we had Mary Claypool who did the uh the organized the English dub basically the uh, for the 1995 version on as a guest to interview for that film and you know, we spoke about those sort of spy connections there, but there is nothing in this. We we covered this because what we do is we cover the remakes like with Dave the Jackal that sort of thing. But yeah, this one was, I mean, just also to answer my own question, it's a no, not just because it definitely isn't a spy film, but also it's just a really, a serviceable misfire. Um, I don't think we need to really belabor it any more than that. It's it's a real shame because we all love the source material. Yep, it's true. <sighs> well, our name is Spy Hard's Podcast and we do not consent for this film to make the knock list. I've been saving that one for quite some time. <laughs> I hope you're all happy with it. Um, and it's definitely not, uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, filed and marked as classified. Now, Jara, I want to thank you for stepping on, or stepping off, as I said, the Enterprise and onto the show. Um, where can people hear more from you? Yeah, you can find me on the Women at Warp podcast. We're at Women at Warp on all the social channels, or you can find us at womenatwarp.com and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Is there an episode in particular you would recommend people check out who have never listened to this show? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, So if you are like a Trek expert... Um, then uh, I would suggest uh, diving into one of our thematic episodes. I'm particularly proud of, of one we did recently on um, uh, colonialism and imperialism in Star Trek um, with um, a couple of really great guests, um, including um, Professor of Indigenous Studies uh, from Australia, Lynette Russell. Um, so I, I'm particularly proud of some of those bigger thematic episodes. If you are more of a dabbler Trekkie and you also, or you just don't want to listen to something that serious because the world is on fire, um, then <laughs> we have a very funny episode on Deanna Troy, um, as well as, uh, there's one on Guinan called like Guinan Intergalactic Woman of Mystery and, and Hats or something. So I feel <laughs> like those are some pretty accessible first listens. 
It sounds like there's a spy connection with Guy in the International Woman of Mystery, Intergalactic Woman of Mystery. I like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I hope the Deanna Troy episode features chocolate cake at least once. Oh, probably. I'm sure we talked about chocolate. Yeah. It has to be. Well, yeah, there'll be links in the show notes below for Women at Warp. And of course, um, where can people find you on social media? Um, yeah, so I'm uh, personally on Twitter at Jarrah Penguin. That's J A R R A H Penguin. Perfect. And we'll put links to that below. But Jarrah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was fun. Well, thank you once again to Jarrah for joining us. And we definitely recommend checking out the Women at Warp podcast. And you can find links to that in the show notes below. But Cam, what are we talking about next week? Well, Scott, we've bounced around genres quite a bit. You know, we had sci-fi this week. We've done various other things in the past. But we are going to have a first next week. This is going to be our first musical spy film we are tackling 1967's the fastest guitar alive starring roy orbison i for the longest time i thought finding a spy (laughs) musical was the holy grail of this uh this search we have started to find the best spy movies of all time and lo and behold we've stumbled upon one We've got a great guest joining us next week as well um, to bring some uh, musical knowledge because, well, I mean, I'm a trained musician, but Cam, I've I, I basically said you couldn't carry a tune if you tried. No, that's true. Although, if you search the internet, you may find some podcasts out there other than this one where I am rapping the introduction music. And uh, if you search YouTube quite hard, you might find some clips of... Uh cam pretending to be some certain characters and rapping about them yeah yeah uh the novelty rap i guess is my bag baby it's also great because next week is our 99th official review episode on our mainline sort of episodes uh leading up to our 100th so we thought well let's uh let's uh really go for it and go for a musical so uh yeah i'm looking forward to it yeah i think this is going to be a ton of fun i'm looking forward to this one as well are you going to be rapping an intro for us next week like a special celebration Definitely not. <laughs> I, maybe one day. Maybe maybe when we get to 101 and we like launch the next 100, uh, I'll, I'll get you to record an intro for us. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Bringing it back. Sure. Can you do a James Bond rap? That is the question. I guarantee I could. Yeah. Yeah, I really think you could. I really think you could. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Fastest Guitar Alive from 1967, starring... Roy Orbison himself and join us next week if you liked what you heard on the show this week please consider leaving us a five star review wherever you get your podcast it just helps spread the spy hard's love and speaking of love don't forget to show us some love discreetly on social media at spy hard's that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners i wasn't built to dance <laughs>